Good morning. I'm Sanaa, and you're listening to Let's Grab Coffee on WYXR 91.7 FM. Every Monday morning, I'm joined by experts from across the country who are investigating our most pressing social issues and common curiosities. Over the next hour, you'll learn about their inspirations, motivations, and of course, what they know about the world around us. So grab that cup of coffee and get ready for a fun and insightful conversation. In today's era of social media, everyone's an influencer, which means that everyone, yes, me and you, can also be a producer of propaganda. And it also means that everyone, again, me and you, can also be manipulated. Now, propaganda may sound like a big, scary word, but it's important to understand what propaganda is in our current digital age, what it looks like, and its implications for our political discourse, for what we believe about democracy, popular opinion, and political consensus. Dr. Samuel Woolley delves into the people and the processes behind fake news, bots, and algorithms in his latest book, Manufacturing Consensus, Understanding Propaganda in the Age of Automation and Anonymity. Dr. Woolley is a writer, researcher, and professor whose work focuses on how new media tools get used for both freedom and control. His previous book, The Reality Game, How the Next Wave of Technology Will Break the Truth, discusses the ways digital disinformation and propaganda are already being spread using virtual reality, artificial intelligence, and other novel technologies. He is also the co-author with Nick Monaco of Bots and co-editor with Dr. Philip N. Howard of Computational Propaganda. Dr. Woolley is a faculty member in the School of Journalism and Media at the University of Texas at Austin. He is also the program director of the Propaganda Research Lab and a Knight Foundation faculty fellow at the Center for Media Engagement. His academic work has appeared in numerous academic journals, and he has written extensively for popular outlets. His research has been featured in the New York Times, the Washington Post, and the Wall Street Journal, among others. He is the co-creator of the Computational Propaganda Research Project, now based at the Oxford Internet Institute at the University of Oxford, and the founder of the Digital Intelligence Lab at the Institute for the Future, a 50-year-old think tank based in the heart of Silicon Valley. His latest book, what we'll be talking about today, Manufacturing Consensus, Understanding Propaganda in the Age of Automation and Anonymity, is an in-depth exploration of social media an emergent technology that details the inner workings of modern propaganda. Good morning, Sam. Thank you so much for joining us. Morning. Thank you for having me. Yes, I am so excited to talk about this book because I'm becoming more and more, I kind of want to say obsessed a little bit about uh, social media, about how we're using it, the way we're, we're learning about the world and connecting with one another. And so when I saw your title, Manufacturing Consensus, I was immediately grabbed because of course I was thinking about manufacturing consent. Um, And so I was like, okay, This guy is going to have something really interesting to tell us, something important that we need to know for the world that we currently live in. I hope so. You know, the book was obviously inspired by um, Herman and Chomsky's book, Manufacturing Consent from the 80s. And in that book, they they argued about uh, the ways in which the broadcast media, um, you know, TV, film, newspapers, the ways in which those uh, entities and organizations were controlled by powerful interests, so mm-hmm. much so uh, that still today, over uh, 90% of the media organizations in the United States are controlled by just six companies. And mm-hmm. so I wanted to build on those ideas and ask the question, 
Well, how has social media changed the game? We know that Facebook, Google, um, their parent companies, Meta, Alphabet, and then uh, you know a host of other companies and, uh, frankly, individuals control the online world as we know it. Uh, and what does that do to our understanding of the world? What does that do to our the way that we get news? And uh, you know, honestly, what does that do to propaganda in today's day and age? Mm, such important questions because they have real life implications for all of us. And, you know, something I find myself telling people is like Twitter is my number one news source. And it's kind of true. But after reading your book, I'm like, oh, no. <laughs> <laughs> but, you know, like Twitter makes it so easy to just get a quick idea of kind of like the headlines. And so mm -hmm. you feel like, OK, I kind of have a, a, a pulse for what's going on in the world. But again, like I said, after reading your book, I'm like, oh, my goodness, I don't I don't know anything. Uh <laughs> yeah, you know, like, I mean, it's fair. And, and I would say that Twitter is great in a lot of ways just because it's always been this space, you know, since it was founded, really, that you can follow journalists, you could follow mm -hmm. academics, you could follow people that were doing the research and, and studying stuff. And, and then, you know, also find your own community in, in a number of other ways. Um, but the thing that I reveal in the book is that Twitter in particular, but also a number of other sites, YouTube, uh, I mentioned Facebook, um, and, you know, all the other ones that you can really think of that you would call social media can be controlled. And mm -hmm. uh, as you mentioned in the lead up to the show, um, it's not just powerful in individuals. It's not just powerful entities like Russia or the U.S. government or um, or corporations that can control the way we think. Increasingly, small groups of, of well-organized individuals um, sometimes truly grassroots groups that are coming from mm -hmm. the people, but more often than not, astroturf groups that are somehow connected to broader streams of money are able to use these tools to manipulate the way we think and manipulate what we talk about. And so that's the stuff that I get go in a lot of depth into in this book. Mm -hmm. Yes. And we'll get into a little bit of it. Um, so for listeners, you kind of already are getting a feel for some of the main themes in manufacturing consensus. But I want to take a, just a little step back so that our listeners really understand what we're talking about when we say propaganda. Um, because as you talk about in the book, you know, we kind of toss this word around to kind of mean a lot of different things or kind of stand in to mean a lot of different ideas. Um, but could you tell us how you you're thinking about propaganda and the specific type of propaganda that you're investigating um, in your research. Yeah, definitely. So, um, you know, obviously the, the core ideas you'll see right in the title are three things, really. So the first is propaganda, the second is automation, and the third is anonymity. Um, and these are really, you know, purposeful choices for me. We hear a lot of discussion these days about things like misinformation, which is the accidental spread of false content that anyone can do. Uh, we also hear about disinformation, which is the purposeful spread of false content uh, that, that uh, you know, folks that are actually trying to manipulate people do. Mm -hmm. um, and then there's propaganda, which captures both of these things kind of, but also a much broader array of ways to manipulate people using emotion, using mm -hmm. um, selective kernels of truth. And so propaganda is at the core of this. And in its essence, like, you know, I, I give a complex definition and a more complex, but not really complex definition <laughs> in the book. 
Um, but what I say when I'm talking about propaganda is manipulating people using means other than logic. So mm-hmm. um, trying to get to people by twisting their emotions, mm-hmm. by trying to make them mad, by trying to make them check out or be apathetic. Mm-hmm. Um, and so propaganda for me isn't necessarily, as it's as it has existed for a long time, a bad thing. But what I talk about in the book are malicious attempts to manipulate right. people. And so that's really crucial. The second, the second and third things, automation and anonymity, you know, people oftentimes say to me when they talk, when they ask me questions about this book and about my past work, they say, well, propaganda has existed forever. Like, you know, people have been trying to manipulate us forever. Like, how is this any different? And the thing I say is, well, two ways, right? Automation Mm -hmm. and anonymity. Automation allows for uh, propaganda to be amplified so that it exists in today's world on digital steroids, basically. Mm-hmm. The internet um, magnifies our ability to access all kinds of information, but tools like bots, which many people have probably heard of because of the news, um, but also AI and, and newer tools like ChatGPT, these uh, large mm-hmm. language models, they allow for the amplification of particular ideas. Uh, they they recurate certain kinds of content that then manipulate oftentimes the algorithms, which are also themselves automated, that run social media platforms. Um, And so you have this kind of cyclical, annoying feedback loop where all behind the scenes, these you have computers talking to one another that are being controlled by people who understand these things Mm -hmm. in order to get certain kinds of information to be prioritized and other kinds of information to be pushed, pushed down and suppressed. Um, And then new media tools get used for both freedom and control. His previous book, The Reality Game, How the Next Wave of Technology Will Break the Truth, discusses the ways digital disinformation and propaganda are already being spread using virtual reality, artificial intelligence, and other novel technologies. He is also the co-author with Nick Monaco of Bots and co-editor with Dr. Philip N. Howard of Computational Propaganda. Dr. Woolley is a faculty member in the School of Journalism and Media at the University of Texas at Austin. He is also the program director of the Propaganda Research Lab and a Knight Foundation faculty fellow at the Center for Media Engagement. His academic work has appeared in numerous academic journals, and he has written extensively for popular outlets. His research has been featured in The New York Times, The Washington Post, and The Wall Street Journal, among others. He is the co-creator of the Computational Propaganda Research Project, now based at the Oxford Internet Institute at the University of Oxford, and the founder of the Digital Intelligence Lab at the Institute for the Future, a 50-year-old think tank based in the heart of Silicon Valley. His latest book, what we'll be talking about today, Manufacturing Consensus, Understanding Propaganda in the Age of Automation and Anonymity, is an in-depth exploration of social media an emergent technology that details the inner workings of modern propaganda. Good morning, Sam. Thank you so much for joining us. Morning. Thank you for having me. Yes, I am so excited to talk. Um, And it just made me think like how easy it is for us to, again, look at a trending topic or just something that continues to show up in our feed and believe that this is really what people are thinking um, or even an idea or topic that a larger swath of people are are believing in. Um, But again, you talk about how bots are actually being used to manipulate, again, those trending topics and the algorithm. So what we're seeing isn't necessarily a true representation of how people feel or even what they're thinking about. You've got it spot on. So the thing is with with social media, with these 
platforms, whether it's YouTube or TikTok or other ones, um, they give you the illusion of having their finger on the pulse of being mm-hmm. able to tell you what's popular right now. They say to you, we, here's a, tr- here's what the trends are. Here's what people are talking about. The premise that I put forward in the book, the argument that I'm making here is that through the use of fake automated accounts, bots, but also other kinds of accounts that people run without putting their real name on them, what we call sock puppets. There's a, there's a lot of different ways that you can work to manipulate what those trends say. The social media companies, when they first built these things, didn't think about the fact that people would be trying to manipulate them for their own means and ends. And so that meant that early on marketers, you know, corporations, all these kinds of groups figured out that if they got thousands of accounts to to boost a message or a particular Mm -hmm. hashtag or something that they could get their product to quote unquote trend. And the social media company would then recurate that content onto their homepage and say, Hey, everyone's talking about this. You should pay attention to it. Mm -hmm. The thing was, was that politicians and political groups quickly understood that too. And obviously corporations as well, because now we live in a world with (laughs) citizens United where, where corporations are very involved in politics in the U S and around the world. Um, And so now those bots and sock puppets and also a variety of other mechanisms, including like now coordinated groups of influencers who are paid Mm -hmm. small amounts of money are being, are, are being programmed or paid to push this content that creates fake trends, that creates Mm -hmm. false trends, that creates false momentum. And oftentimes the goal isn't to have the bot talk to you and and get you to change your mind about something. The bot is trying to talk to the algorithm. It's trying to trick Mm -hmm. the social media company itself, trying to trick their algorithms so that they present you with information that's bogus or false or misleading or polarizing. And so that's the world we live in. That's the broader sort of like idea behind behind this book and behind what I wrote about. Mm -hmm. And of course, in your book, you're focusing very much on the political implications um, for automation, for the anonymity. And I'm wondering if you could talk a little bit about that, um, because I mean, there's so many examples. I'm sure we're we're all familiar with, you know, quote unquote, stolen elections and and these Hmm. ideas of quote unquote, fake news. Um, But I'm wondering if you could give us some examples for our listeners so that we can really kind of sink our teeth into what's at stake um, in this age of automation and anonymity. Yeah. um, Well, the first thing that listeners should know is that this has been going on for a really long time. So oftentimes when social media companies talk about um, manipulation online, propaganda, disinformation, bots, stolen elections, they talk about it as if it's like this new thing that they Mm -hmm. just figured out. (laughs) But but this goes back all the way to 2010 and arguably before that to the early days of social media companies like Twitter and Facebook. Um, back in 2010, there's an example of when uh, Massachusetts had a special election to fill the seat of Ted Kennedy, the, the guy that people called the lion of the Senate, um, in that Democratic stronghold state. There was uh, Scott Brown, a Republican running, and Martha Coakley, a Democrat running. And at the time, um, it was it was a tight race for a variety of different reasons. Some accounts online... And when I say some, I mean a lot of accounts online started spreading messages that Martha Coakley, the Democrat, was Mm anti-Catholic. Now, in Massachusetts, that's a pretty big accusation. And Coakley, uh, eventually it it gained traction. Um, It started getting picked up in news outlets because they Mm -hmm. were noticing that it was was showing up online and, and trending online. 
it also other people started talking about it. Um, Coakley started having to defend herself against it. And so mm-hmm. it just gained more momentum. Well, some researchers at the time, some computer scientists realized that, hey, this is actually a group of bots. It's a group of fake profiles that are being run by a really small group of people in Iowa, of all mm. places. And they've functionally gained control of like a major narrative in this race. And the outcome of that race was that Martha Coakley lost. Mm. And, um, you know, some people, you know, say, well, how do you know it was the bots that did it? And you can't know for sure. That's part of the problem here. Like people right. always are throwing shade on these things and saying, we don't know what the, the impact of this is. But what I can say is that there are impacts. There absolutely are impacts. And in this case, Martha Coakley became known as an anti-Catholic candidate, even though that was a blatant lie. Mm. And in many other cases across across time over the last 10 years, we've seen that happen again and again and again. So um, even more recently, uh, the Associated Press uh, just put out an article um, that I talked to them for, where there's a big group of fake accounts that have been pushing heavily pro-Trump narratives Mm. And crazy anti-DeSantis, anti-Nikki um, Haley, anti-Biden narratives. Mm-hmm. And so it's not just like Democrat v. Republican stuff. It's also Republican against Republican, Republican yeah. against Democrat. And then it's 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 also a global phenomenon, too. Right. So my research doesn't even just look at the U.S. In this book, uh, Manufacturing Consensus, I also talk about this, how this has played out in places like South Korea, in the mm-hmm. Philippines, in North, across North Africa, in Europe. And, and what we find, you know, my, my research team and I is that there are people that are doing this kind of stuff, not just trying to like smear political candidates, but also all kinds of other stuff across the world. Mm-hmm. Yeah. I mean, that is, and all the examples <coughs> that you give us throughout the book, I mean, really just drive home how these different um, computational tools are being used and for a variety of, of different reasons, or I should say by a variety of different people. We, as you mentioned kind of earlier, it's not just it's not just different governments, it's not just big corporations, but it's everyday folks who maybe have a, a certain political idea or allegiance or simply are kind of just doing it just because they can, <laughs> which I thought yeah. um, was also very scary where it's like people are just, just because they can, you know, know how to use the tech, um, they're able to manipulate it. Um, and that kind of blew my mind too, because you think about, oh, someone is doing this for a particular reason to get out a particular idea. And that's not necessarily always the case either. Yeah. I, so like the first part there, like you're so right. Like the first part is people have this perception that um, the goal is to kind of try to change your opinion about a candidate, which, you know, is, is the case some of the time, you know, as with my previous example, uh, to try to get you to vote for one person and not another. But oftentimes these botnets and groups of fake accounts or coordinated groups of influencers and other mechanisms are used to actually make people angry or apathetic mm-hmm. or just try to get them to check out of the political process. Specifically, like my team now is studying the ways in which communities of color and diaspora communities are are unduly targeted with this stuff mm-hmm. in the United States. And what we find is that a lot of the messages targeting, say, for instance, the black community in Atlanta or um, the Latino community in San Antonio, those messages are trying to get them to not vote. They're mm-hmm. trying to get them to check the political process. Now, the other point uh, that you're making there is that, you know, anyone can kind of do this. And so it's not just organized political groups, it's not just like political parties or candidates or stuff, or stuff like that. 
it's also, you know, small groups of people like those folks in Iowa I mentioned earlier. It's also, um, it's also individuals. A lot of the people I spoke to for this book are are individuals that have past lives working in in and around, you know, computer coding or software development who have figured out like, hey, I can game this system. And some of them are doing it because they are, you know, deep believers in a particular kind of politics. Some of them are doing it because they figured out how to monetize it, a lot mm-hmm. of them, um, because they can draw ads to particular particular websites and that kind of thing, or also they can rent out their botnets. And then, you know, there's the final group, which are people that are just doing it to to screw around with people and to and to try to to try to mess with people, the trolls. And mm-hmm. um, you know, some people are a combination of all three. And that's what makes this space so fascinating and worrisome. And also, you know, it was one of the big reasons I wanted to write the book because, you know, back in 2016 when I was at, at Oxford, people were having these discussions. They were saying, oh, Russia, Russia this, or China that, or the United States this. And I'm like, yeah, all of all of these countries are involved in the spread of the propaganda. They're still the most sophisticated actors in the space. They still have the most resources. But the reality of the internet is that anyone can build propaganda. And until we start to understand that the amount of noise that's out there is created by a variety of groups, we will be all be so um, like receptive in a very bad way to being manipulated by this content. And so, you know, that's part of the big reason why I wanted to to explain this stuff. Mm, Thank you so much for that. Well, let's take a quick break. This is Let's Grab Coffee on WYXR 91.7 FM. I'm Sanaa and I'm here with Dr. Samuel Woolley, the author of Manufacturing Consensus, Understanding Propaganda in the Era of Automation and Anonymity. Now, Sam, something that I'm sure our listeners want to know is how were you able to talk to folks who were creating some of these coordinated campaigns? Um, How were you able to gain their trust and and really find out what they were thinking about, how they were even, um, you know, again, taking on some of these campaigns, creating these bots. Could you give us a little bit of information about, you know, building that trust, but also some of the different types of folks that you were able to talk to? Sure. So this, this book is based on conversations and, and what I call, you know, or what others have called ethnographic work over the course of 10 years, um, a little less than 10 years of work with folks who are building these, these political bot groups or commercial bot groups, um, that are buying them, that are working to track them and uncover them. Um, and, you know, then sort of everyone else that exists on the on the tangents of that. So people like influencers online, people that work at social media companies, journalists and stuff like that who are studying this. Um, the people do ask me this question a lot. They ask me, like, <laughs> you know, how did you get to talk to these people? And there's a few different ways that I went about it. So the first uh honest truth is that I started doing this work early and it was kind of a right place, right time thing. So in 2013, um, I started this research and I, uh, I started speaking to people then. Mm -hmm. And so that was prior to 2016 when, when Cambridge Analytica happened and, and, and the Russian interference in the U S election happened and, and everyone kind of got wise to the fact that, Hey, maybe social media aren't, you know, like, 
just good for democracy and good for people. <laughs> everyone started, you know, everyone had kind of had these inklings, but they weren't quite there yet. And so because I was there early, I was able to reach out to people who were way more willing to talk to me early on than, the, mm-hmm. than they were later. And also I had already built the relationships with them over the course of three years by the time, you know, everything, uh, you know, hit the fan. Um, and so uh, that was useful. Um, those people introduced me to other people. We call it, you know, in academia, <laughs> the fancy word for it, which is not very fancy and this kind of funny is snowball sampling. Uh-huh. So uh, like a snowball rolling downhill, like these people introduced me to other people. And the funny thing that I quickly realized was a lot of them knew each other. And then also they were all around the world. There's a mm-hmm. lot of people that do this um, around the world. And a lot of them like to brag about what they do, uh, especially in the beginning, but including still today. They think that they are, you know, and rightfully so in some cases, that they are mavericks online. They think that they have figured out how to game the system. Mm -hmm. They think that they're getting away with a lot. And to be really frank, they are. Um, Mm -hmm. And so because they were speaking to me under the condition of anonymity, uh, which is a, was a prerequisite uh, required by both my university, all of the universities I've worked at, but also, you know, for the sake of these people and myself, so that they could speak openly and we could share this information with the public. They were willing to tell me stuff because they, at their heart, most of them are kind of PR folks, they're marketers, they're hype people. A lot mm-hmm. of there, a lot of them are very politically minded. A lot of them um, are a little high on their own supply. And so that was like, you know, another thing that was important to note, which was that I had to a lot of times figure out what was true and what wasn't true. And so I had to do a lot of vetting and I had Mm -hmm. to, I had to ask a lot of, a lot of follow-ups and I had to check in with them often and also ask for documentation and ask to talk to other people. And so, you know, that's how I got access to these folks. Um, Uh, uh, it was a step-by-step process and it included going to a lot of like advertising conferences, like reaching out to people online, like dropping into their DMs and being like, hey, can we talk? <laughs> and um, and then like more sophisticated processes, like, you know, going through like uh, professional organizations where there was like people that were involved in in social media marketing and mm-hmm. and kind of finding the 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 the, the <laughs> I don't want to say the evil side, but like I want to say <laughs> the, the the side where morals were a lot looser than the other side. Mm-hmm. Thank you for that. Because I mean, again, like when you all read the book, you will like just the type of information, um, some of the things that the people you talk to that they share, it's really mind blowing because you know, for them, maybe they are kind of flexing some of their technical skills, right? Or getting excited that they were able to maybe game an algorithm to pick up, you know, whatever it is that they're trying to to talk about or whatever it is they want you to feel. Um, but for, you know, just kind of, I guess, like an everyday person who is going to social media and believes it, there's something there that can tell, get, tell me what's going on in the world or how people are feeling, I was like, oh my goodness, it's all a lie. It's all, all a lie. Yeah. Um, particularly as you were talking about how journalists will use some of these trending topics or even retweets or likes or, you know, some of these numbers as evidence of, hey, people are feeling, you know, whatever feeling towards this topic, this social issue, this candidate, um, and how that isn't necessarily telling us the truth and then can lead us to some very dangerous conclusions. 
Yeah, absolutely. And and so, I mean, that's, that's, those are the, the ideas at the heart of the book, like, and really what it's about is these folks stories and, mm-hmm. and the reality of what they've, what, what they're able to achieve and what they, what they want to be able to achieve. And so I think that's what people have to tune into here is like, yes, there are narratives going around um, spread by politicians for their own means and ends, but also by uh, academics and others that say Mm -hmm. none of this really matters. You know, disinformation online doesn't actually impact people. Bots don't have an impact. Like we don't actually know what the problem is or actually the problem's way overblown. And so, you know, I tried to go back directly to the source, to the people that make and build this stuff and that track mm-hmm. it in order to learn exactly what the what the consequences of this stuff are. And I realized really quickly that there are a lot of consequences and and it is mind-blowing what these people are able to achieve. They're able to manufacture virality. They create mm-hmm. they create fake virality online. They're able to create basically fake influencers. They're able to coordinate groups of influencers um, that people know and love and follow for their other kinds of content and then get them to lend their profile and their popularity and their platform to spread political messaging increasingly now in a way that we don't know it's coming from another group that's, that's paying them. Um, And the other thing too, like, is that uh, we talk, we talk about outcomes of, of manipulation of people online, uh, you know, oftentimes only in the context of like, whether or not, it led to an election being won or lost Mm -hmm. or whether it led to an election being stolen. If you talk to some people. Um, But what I found in, in, in writing this book and in doing this research over the last decade or so is, is that it's oftentimes marginalized communities, um, Mm -hmm. people of color, uh, um, journalists, women, those are the groups that are oftentimes the targets of computational propaganda, manipulation online, and this manufactured consensus. And um, their stories oftentimes don't get told. And so one of the things I'm trying to I try to do in this book is 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 lift those stories up and say, listen, if you want to look at impact, talk to these communities, talk mm-hmm. to journalists, talk to women, and you'll find really quickly that many of these people have experienced these attacks. Mm-hmm. They've been they've been the, on the receiving end, and it stopped them from continuing to be a journalist, or mm-hmm. it stopped them from uh, speaking out online, or it stopped them from believing in democracy. You know, and these outcomes are serious, serious outcomes that we need to be paying attention to. Mm-hmm. I'm glad that you mentioned that because, of course, we're not just talking about how social media um, can lead us to this consensus of feeling again, which I think is important in itself too. that anger, the apathy, that polarization that you talked about, but also how through these coordinated attacks that, as you mentioned, journalists can think twice about, you know, topics that they want to write about or the ways that they write about them, or even, you know, academics and particularly communities of color um, who have used the internet in order to connect with one another, but also bring attention to a variety of different social issues people can feel very afraid um, to to continue to do that work in, you know, in a way that will draw more attention, right? And so then what what happens 
not only to those folks and their very real lives, right? Because we do see sometimes um, those threats online materialize into threats in the in the in the physical world, uh, but also what happens when we know less about what's happening, right? To marginalized groups, and when we know less and have um, less nuanced conversations about some of these social issues. So I'm really get- glad that you brought that up. I know even in the book you mentioned. Um, at a time you were also right being attacked by some bots and, and maybe questioning a little bit about how you're going to talk about certain things for a short period of time. Yeah, definitely. Um, so uh, a new, a relatively new phenomenon in this space, like not new, but something that a lot of people are, are talking about right now is that researchers are, are who study this stuff are now mm-hmm. getting attacked a lot. And I think this is the, this is the, Logical, logical progression of this kind of new way of spreading manipulation and falsehood um, that uh, when people don't know about it, uh, when most people are are not familiar with it, they're the ones that are being targeted because they're mm-hmm. easier to trick. Um, mm-hmm. And then there's an attempt to try to get also journalists to recurate bogus information because they're working on tight deadlines and yeah. and uh it's hard for them to like you know find good sources all the time so they're looking at social media for trends and other things that inform their reporting and then now um you know the researchers who continue to dig into this stuff and uncover the ways in which disinformation and manipulation flow are being targeted and so sure like you know that means that people like me have been targeted but also um, and and more uh, much more importantly, it means that uh, a lot of a lot of women, a lot mm-hmm. of faculty of color, and others in this space who are are you know really trying to speak uh, on behalf of particular communities and to particular communities are also threatened with being silenced right now. Um, mm-hmm. And you know it's a it, it's it's a scary it's a scary place to be. It always kind of has been a scary place to do work, but it's a scary place to be right now, especially for those people um, who who uh, who are, you know, operating from a very different position than than someone like me, who you know is is a white cis male um, uh, who has a faculty position at a big university in Texas. Um, and so, you know, I say all of this to say that these these tools these mechanisms are especially powerful just to reiterate what what you were saying and what i said earlier they're especially powerful at taking the voice away from people who already lack uh any kind of you know way to really speak in our political system and our commercial system and mm-hmm. so that to me is a huge problem yeah absolutely Well, let's take another short break. I'm Sanaa, and you're listening to Let's Grab Coffee on WYXR 91.7 FM. This is Let's Grab Coffee on WYXR 91.7 FM. I'm Sanaa, and I'm here with Dr. Samuel Woolley, the author of Manufacturing Consensus, Understanding Propaganda in the Era of Automation and Anonymity. Now, before the break, we were talking a lot about the perils of, um, social media in particular, how it can be manipulated um, for 
you know, manufacturing consensus, um, consensus of feeling or the illusion of consensus, um, but also how um, social media can be used to silence people as well. And so I'm wondering, you know, because I don't like to leave the listeners on on too much of a, of a sad note. I like to have people feel like they can do something. And so I'm wondering, you know, from your research, what is it that we can do as everyday consumers of social media and participants in social media? Because Pretty much every like social media is, is all of our lives in some way at this point. What is it that we can do maybe to either be aware of when we're particular might be manipulated or or be exposed to propaganda? Or even what is it that we can do to try to protect people um, from some of these attacks as well? Yeah. So the first thing that I want to say to people is there's reason for hope. I'm still optimistic about the power of the internet and about the power of social media. Um, it's still possible to use these tools uh, to to connect with each other. It's still possible to use these tools to organize, to build community, and to communicate about important topics. Um, you know, increasingly you have people moving to encrypted chat apps like WhatsApp, Signal, Telegram. Um, those places offer a little bit more privacy, uh, but it's important also that people know that there's propaganda that spreads there too. And there's people mm -hmm. that are in those spaces too. So you're not impervious to being attacked in those spaces. Um, now, all of that said, uh, one big thing that's important is that more people are talking about this problem than ever before. In 2013, when I started doing this work, um, no one was really having these kinds of conversations, very, very mm. few people. And so the fact that like, we're even here talking, uh, you know, on your, on your show about this is so, so important to me because back then we couldn't even get the social media companies to pay attention to the research that we were doing. Uh, mm. And we were in Seattle at the university of Washington. We would share our stuff and say, Hey, like here, here are reports on a bunch of fake traffic on your platform. Here's a bunch of stuff about fake political traffic. Here's a bunch of stuff about maybe fake traffic around advertising, stuff that should really matter to them and they wouldn't pay attention. But now that's all changed. Mm -hmm. And so one thing that I say to people is we've got to keep paying attention. We can't forget that this is an issue because that is exactly what these these people that spread this propaganda, what what politicians and what, frankly, the social media companies want you to do. Mm -hmm. They want you to think that they've got that problem under control, uh, that there's no need for law and regulation in the space, and that we just need to move forward. Nothing could be further from the truth. We need laws and regulation in this space so badly. Um, mm -hmm. You know, uh, there is still, it's still, the, the law online is still, you know, so far behind um, what we see happening in other media. And people say, oh, well, if you use regulation online, you're going to prevent us from innovating. I don't buy that. I, mm -hmm. I think that like, we need a safe space for innovation. And, and the internet right now is not a safe space for innovation. It's a space where only the people with a lot of resources that look a certain way and act a certain way can actually get the funding and the resources to, 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 to make the money that people talk about so often and to innovate the way that they talk about. And so write to your senator, write to your Congress people, uh, get them to do something about this. Um, also, you know, think about your own usage of social media. Think about your own usage of search engines and, and, and arm yourself with knowledge, you know, go out there and get online and figure out what your privacy settings are, figure mm -hmm. out what data is being sold to these companies, because that data that gets sold 
to, to the companies that then sell it to others, these data intermediaries or data brokers, that then gets used to retarget you and not just you, other people who look like you. So, mm. um, so prevent that data from being gathered. Um, you know, there's, there's different applications that are out there that are useful online. So if you're looking and trying to figure out whether or not an account is a bot on a site like Twitter, there's a, a there's a tool called Botometer that you can like just drop the, the account's name into and it'll show you right away, like how bot-like it is, which is a useful tool. Um, it's limited though, because it's only really in English and it only mm. really works on Twitter. And so <laughs> that's a point, right? We need more tools in more languages on more platforms. And mm-hmm. um, we need we need more investment in that space. Um, and then the last thing I'll end on is like, you know, another reason for hope, but another area where we need to do work is education. Uh, you know, more than anything, the point that I try to make in this book is that this isn't just a technological problem. Actually, mm-hmm. it's way more of a social problem. Uh, it's way more of a political problem. And until we start to educate our children and also, you know, our adults <laughs> about the ways that information flows online and about mm-hmm. how propaganda works online, um, people are going to keep getting fooled by this stuff. Mm-hmm. And and it's going to continue to to be able to to rule our lives and to run our political system and uh i don't accept that i don't think you should accept that and so you know what i would say is let's let's create mechanisms for media literacy and information literacy in public schools so that everyone has access to understand the space um not just the propagandists Mm-hmm. Yes, I think that is so key, that media literacy piece. Um, and particularly, you know, I'm a professor at a university, you're a professor. So interacting with young people, you understand yeah. how little media literacy that folks have. Yeah, that's so true. And everyone says, oh, young people, they know this space so well. And what I say to them is, <laughs> that's not true at all. Like, actually, I just heard about some research at a Stanford School of Education that said that they like showed false information to 3,200 students under the age of 18 and they asked them to to say whether or not a particular video was fake or not and it was so obviously fake only (laughs) only two or three of them figured out that it was fake uh the rest of them didn't figure it out and all they would have had to do was do a little bit of searching on google which they were allowed to do as part of this experiment they didn't do it and so absolutely young people need this information (laughs) yes i'm i'm just thinking about some of the assignments i give my students where i ask them to find a, a reputable credible source and a lot of the information they bring back to me i'm like okay come on y'all really (laughs) <laughs> tell me about it yeah i experience the same thing all the time i'm like you you, you you're here you're in college mm-hmm. but somehow you got all the way here without ever really getting media or information literacy yeah. or really so now like like to boil it down even further like really getting a lot of skills in critical thinking and that doesn't just that's just not not only a, a problem of social media that's a problem of our education system right mm-hmm. we have trained our kids to we teach for tests. We Mm -hmm. teach them for the SAT and for other tests. We don't teach them for critical thinking. We don't teach them to be wise to the ways of the world. And we've got to start doing that because we're, we're, we're creating a generations, generations of people that are so vulnerable to this kind of manipulation. And that's scary. 
Mm -hmm. Yeah, absolutely. I think that's really key. And even if I, as I'm thinking about older generations, like my parents, grandparents, the way, you know, on the other end, the way they really trusted legacy media, they, they really trusted that news reporter on the evening news that was really giving them in their eyes, unbiased, factual, you know, information about the world. I think that that also works against them as well, because now they go to these news sources that they trust and and just accept that whatever, you know, they're telling them is the truth. But as you show in the book, that's not true. <laughs> I mean, we could think about the goals of certain, you know, news entertainment companies, but then we can also think as you outline in the book, how even journalists sometimes can pick up um, and report on different trending topics or, or cite different sources that again, have been, you know, manipulated and it's actually bots and propaganda and not, you know, reflective of popular opinion. Yeah. And, and so that's a great point. And the older generation, <laughs> they could trust at least that say like Barbara Walters or something that she <laughs> had, like, she had some checks and balances on her, yeah. right? Like that there was still the pursuit of objectivity, that, yeah. uh, that there was still a code of ethics, that the society for professional journalists or whatever it was, was looking over their shoulder to say like, these are the things that you need to do in order to create good quality news. Obviously a lot's changed in the news since since the 70s, 80s, and even 90s. Um, but at the same time, like that trust that was built in those people has been a detriment to people mm -hmm. of our parents' generation because they they're more willing uh and honestly like a little bit more gullible to the kind of information that that exists online. They're getting wise to it now, I think. They're getting wise mm -hmm. to the fact that a lot of people try to trick us and and so they're getting more savvy to what they share and what they don't. But the damage has already been done in a lot of ways because part of the way that this propaganda operates and the biggest goal of a lot of the propagandists that are out there is to decrease trust in institutions, mm -hmm. to attack the institution of the news, to attack academia, medicine, government, to make mm -hmm. it so that we don't believe in those things anymore and so that we we don't know whether we're coming or going and we don't really we, we we're all divided. Um, you know, you've we've all heard of the term divide and conquer. Well, that's what propagandists try to do. And so the biggest thing that we can we can work to do now is rebuild trust in institutions through systems of checks and balances, through through, you know, codes of conduct and systems like, mm -hmm. you know, you know, I'm I'm a, not a type A person. I am. I'm messy. My wife would tell you that, um, you know, I'm not super organized, but <laughs> what I can say is that after writing this book and after seeing all the things that I've seen, there is a role for systems and regulations to play. And mm -hmm. in the, it is in this, it needs to be in this space more than ever. You see that with like Elon Musk taking over Twitter, for instance, yeah. and throwing out all the systems that they built to vet trust and safety over time, which were definitely imperfect, mm -hmm. but still, uh, we're still a system. It was still organized. And so that's one big thing that that I, I think about often. Mm -hmm, absolutely. You know, in the book, you talked to someone um, who had worked for a social media company and they expressed a lot of skepticism that any of these big social media companies would ever really try to root out bots or root out the propaganda that, that is circulating. And um, I'm wondering, do you think it's possible that we will see social media really take seriously this issue of, you know, the amount of bots, the way that their algorithms can be manipulated? Or is it too much of a, hey, they get, you know, they get more 
uh, more eyes on their platform. They get more attention, more advertising dollars through these trending topics. And so they don't really have an incentive to really seriously take this issue um, to heart. I hate to say it, but we've got to have a redesign of social media. That's what my last book was. The premise of my last book, the reality game was arguing that we need new social media. Like mm -hmm. um, these companies oftentimes say things like we're, we're, we're building the plane while the plane is being flown. And, and I <laughs> would like to say, I'd like to tell them you need to land that plane and we need to work on it for a little while because right now it's not working right. Mm -hmm. The The ways these systems have been designed uh, to get you to pay attention at all costs, to get you to uh, focus on advertisements, not just the ones on the sidebar, but that are in, in your, when you're scrolling, mm -hmm. um, they're, they're optimized for all the wrong things and bots and so sock puppets and all these things, they generate tons of traffic. They generate mm -hmm. ad clicks. They support the profit motives of these companies. And so all of these piecemeal retrofits, like attempts to say, we did this little thing and that little mm -hmm. thing, and we deleted these 50 accounts. It's laughable to me at this stage. It's like mm -hmm. your whole system needs an overhaul. And in, so in order for us to, to, to have something new, we have to invest in the next wave of whatever's coming in the media world. I don't mean, let's not call it social media. Let's call it something else. Um, and that's where we can look to young people for ideas. That's where we can look to spaces like encrypted chat applications that, that give us more privacy. That's where we can look to things like data, data cooperatives that give us more ownership of our own data. Um, and think new and exciting things and let go of these ideas that have driven these old platforms that I think are outmoded and aren't serving society or serving the individuals that use these platforms. Mm, thank you so much. I, I love your hopefulness, but also, you know, these very real critiques, right? Um, so I, I, I like hearing both of those. I know we're almost at the end of our time together this morning. So I just have one last question for you, because I, if I'm not mistaken, you are on Twitter. And so am, yeah. I'm... So I'm wondering for you, what is your approach to using social media, knowing everything that you know? Um, what is your approach? Because you are there. Um, and so I'm wondering, how do you use social media? And are there any maybe safeguards or anything that you're on alert for as you're kind of navigating these connections that you make in social media and even the things that you say or don't say? Honestly, like my approach now today is to, these days is to use social media pretty simply as a profession, professional mechanism. Like mm -hmm. I, I will use it to share articles I've written or like, you know, times when I've been on shows like this or stuff like that, or like, and so I just pretty much only use Twitter now. I'm still mm -hmm. on Facebook and still on Instagram, but I don't really use them anymore. There was a time in my life where I loved like using Facebook and Instagram, like I'm not, I'm not ashamed to admit it. Like, yeah. you know, I, there, I, I got joy out of it and that time has passed for me. Um, I'm way too skeptical of them. Um, I also feel stressed out by the, by these applications mm. in my life a lot too. And that's a whole other conversation <laughs> that some other people have had, like, that's really important. Um, uh, and so what I would say is like, it's okay to step back. Mm -hmm. It's okay to step back and rethink the way you use these applications. Like to some extent, if you think to yourself, I can't leave these applications completely, you're right. 
Like these are mm-hmm. part of our day-to-day life. And that's why I think this book is important. Like these things are inextricable from our work, from our, from our lived experience. Mm-hmm. And so you don't have to leave completely, but step back and think about how you can use these things in a way that serve you, mm-hmm. in a way that serve your community, not in a way that serve the people that are trying to manipulate your public opinion, your opinion, your, your perception. Um, because, you know, if you just use them unthinkingly, if you just continue to post all the time and, and you're constantly on, you're, you're doing the work of others. Um, mm-hmm. and, and you're getting tricked, even if you're not getting tricked by literal disinformation. Right. Wow. Well, thank you so much, Sam. It has been such a pleasure to talk with you this morning. And you have definitely given me a lot to think about. Thank you. (laughs) Thank you so much, Sana. It's been a real pleasure. Thank you again to Dr. Samuel Woolley. His book is Manufacturing Consensus, Understanding Propaganda in the Era of Automation and Anonymity. And I have to tell you, we barely scratched the surface of this book. There is so much important information in these pages. And I really appreciate how he tells a story, right? It's while the topic might be difficult in some places to understand some of the technology of it all, um, a lot of the different terminology or concepts, Sam is able to break it down so that it's easy to understand, but also we can see these real world applications and also real world implications, particularly as he mentioned, social media is kind of just our lives now, right? It's, it's We're all a part of it. It's, it's part of our lived experience. It's part of our reality. It's how we connect with one another. So social media is not going anywhere, but we have to understand how people are using social media in order to try to manipulate us, in order to try to, to get to feel a certain way, and particularly ways that lead us to be more disconnected, right? Those feelings of anger, or apathy, or polarization or to just get us to check out of the political process. And we absolutely cannot do that. Um, This book, Manufacturing Consensus, I think gives us a lot of really tangible tools to understand the social media world that we're operating in. And I didn't tell Sam this because I was like, he doesn't need to know this. But I think the other day I was following a bot and maybe even had a conversation with one. I'm not I don't know if I'm ashamed to say that because I'm sure we all (laughs) have been communicating with the bot, whether we knew it or not. But I think I was able to pick up on it pretty quick. And I was like, wait a minute, am I talking to a real person or is this a bot? I don't know, but I'm going to go ahead and and, and block <laughs> this account. So that's just to say, hey, all of us can be fooled. And that is really the one of the points of the book, right? That Everyone can be a producer of propaganda and anyone can be manipulated. So we definitely have to stay alert and make sure we're aware of what's going on in our social media surroundings. So that book, again, is Manufacturing Consensus, Understanding Propaganda in the Age of Automation and Anonymity. Well, for today's positive note, I want to leave you with this quote that says, connection is the energy that is created between people when they feel seen, heard, and valued, when they can give and receive without judgment. And that's a quote from Brene Brown. I thought this was so appropriate as we're talking about social media. And of course, in manufacturing consensus, we're talking about the ways that people can use social media uh, for with malicious intent. But Of course, as you heard in our conversation, there is still a lot of hope for how social media can be used 
as a tool to connect with one another. And so I just wanted to leave you with that reminder that connection is the energy that is created between people when they feel seen, heard, and valued, when they can give and receive without judgment. And maybe that is the way that we can approach how we're using social media, where we can feel seen, heard, and valued, and where we can also see other people and hear them as well. Well, this has been Let's Grab Coffee on WYXR 91.7 FM. I'm Sanaa. I'm here every Monday morning. And you probably want to share this conversation with a friend. So guess what? Go ahead, subscribe to Let's Grab Coffee in podcast format. That way you can re-listen, you can share these episodes, and also you can get those alerts for when we have a new episode as well. I can't wait to be back here with you again next Monday morning.